You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As the national conversation about race continues, Washington Post Live brought together two American style icons to talk about inequality and exploitation in fashion. Supermodel activist and CEO Beverly Johnson discussed her trailblazing career, including being the first African-American woman on the cover of Vogue. She was joined by designer, activist, and philanthropist Tina Knowles Lawson, the mother of international superstar Beyonce and singer-songwriter Solange. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Karen Atiyah, and I'm the global opinions editor for The Washington Post. And I am very pleased to welcome two style icons and trailblazers in fashion and entertainment for a conversation about Black representation and race in America. Uh, These two ladies need really little in the way of introduction. Of course, Beverly Johnson is one of the first Black supermodels, a best-selling author, an entrepreneur, and an activist. And joining us is Tina Knows Lawson, who is a designer, activist, and philanthropist. And of course, as many of you know, the mother of Beyonce and Solange, who are two of the most successful women in music, not just Black women, but women in music. And you know, she has plenty to talk about in terms of um, her experience being the stylist uh, for Destiny's Child and what she's doing now with um, voting representation and, and activism. So Beverly, Tina, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. So I want this to be as natural as we can, we can, you know, in, in this uh, situation. Um, so as, as uh, honest as we can, and I just want to start off, Beverly, um, talking about race and racism in the fashion industry. You uh, were the fo- first Black model to appear on the cover of Vogue, um, American Vogue, in 1974. And at that time, it was seen as, you know, real progress. And in fact, that happened uh, in 1974 this month, actually, August 1st, if I believe. Um, Yeah, Uh, but you recently wrote an op-ed for The Post saying that the industry has such a long way to go. Um, Can you talk a bit about that op-ed and what inspired you to write it? Why now? Um, I was inspired to write an op-ed because of you, Karen. I saw you on CNN and I said, look at this beautiful black woman, a a global editor of The Washington Post. So I said, I want to, I want to, I don't want to do a statement. I want to write an op-ed. And that op-ed came from reading Anna Wintour's um, kind of mea culpa about her uh, Black employees and what she didn't do for them. And I thought, wow, you know, you really never hear um, people in those positions, in those positions apologizing. And I said, uh, that was the epidemic impetus that made me want to do the op-ed. And I felt that there was a, there was, there's this tiny window that we have now between COVID and the tragedy of George Floyd and so many black people being um, killed on television. And we're home watching this over and over again. And, and thus the protests and thus the opportunity to address this issue of systemic racism in America. And I have to do that in my industry, which is fashion, uh, beauty, and the media. So that's what I, I, I feel that there's an opening there. And that I, I feel that we have a chance of a new vision. 
And I don't remember this ever being the same before. In 1974, very quickly, you know, coming out of the 60s, um, you know, really wanting to be a lawyer um, for civil rights, watching this on a black and white television in Buffalo, New York. And this whole thing about modeling came up and the money drew me to it. I, I would be able to help my family and my, my siblings go to college and so on and so forth. And then this whole world opened up for me, a defining moment in my life when I became the first black woman on the cover of American Vogue in August 1974, which was a surprise for me, which is being on American Vogue is every model's dream. But from that, I'm here. I mean, I'm here uh, and, and, and a willing participant in this conversation about race. Now, can you talk about, I mean, again, being on that cover uh, and you talk about how you didn't, um, it didn't really hit you until later that, you know, you were the first black supermodel and what a big, on the cover of American Vote and what a big deal that was. Um, but can you just talk about like some of the hardships, the, the frankly, the, the racism that you experienced um, in your career, even after the cover? So the, the racism was typical. Uh, I, I'll I'll say that I wasn't really introduced to it, it from a young child. I remember we were all black swim team and going to the swim meets and they wouldn't let us in the locker room and so on and so forth. But in coming out of the 60s, I thought, hey, it's over. We, we've made it. We have overcome. And I realized in the industry very early on that racism was there and and very, very present in a sense that I did not get the same pay as my white colleagues. I, I wasn't afforded all of the things that come out. And, um, you know, your, your normal, you know, slights and, and, and uh, you know, not being able to work on a certain set in a certain country because you were black and, you know, swimming pools being drained, you know, you're, kind of cliche of what racism is. But now I think, I mean, I, pre I personally have a new vision f for the world as regarding racism. Yeah. And we'll get I to that Johnson rule. <laughs> I want to come back. I want to come back to the solutions that you proposed in, in your op-ed, which is the Beverly Johnson um, the rule, and we'll get to that. But I actually want to take this opportunity to bring in um, Tina on, on this. I realize we're starting this conversation in, in the past and in, in the experience um, uh, that you had. Uh, Tina, the world knew you. You were literally the mother figure and the stylist of Destiny's Child, and obviously one of the most uh, successful girl groups of all time. And, you know, talking about... Um, Beverly's experience in the uh, fashion and entertainment world. Can you just talk about what it was like trying to basically shepherd and guide um, your daughters through uh, through the industry? Uh, when I started, um, it was about 19 years ago. And the industry at that time, um, I remember them starting and me being their stylist and me designing some of the outfits and you know we were big Motown fans my ex-husband and I both and so the girls looked at tapes of Motown and that's where we got our inspiration because those were uh the the costumes that they wore in those days when when you were sitting on the 30th row you could see because there was some 
sparkle, there was some dazzle, they look like stars. And so that was the concept for Destiny's Child. But the label, after maybe about, after the girls started getting a lot of um, recognition, um, they had a meeting with my husband and they told him that basically I was the problem and that I was gonna be the reason why uh, the girls would be limited in their crossover appeal because they were just a little too flashy, a little too Motown, but what they really meant is they were really a little too black. Mm. And, um, and you know, as, as, as an African-American, I know, I've always known <clears throat> that our fashion, our vibe, our style, our swag um, has influenced the fashion world greatly. Um, I remember I used to design things and I would get like criticized for it, but the next thing I know it would be on somebody's runway. And so they mixed um, the street and the elements of our style with their fashion and made it cool. And we made everything cool, but I was told that they should look like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. At the time, they were big pop stars and um, in order for the girls to cross over, they said they needed to wear jeans and t-shirts like like uh, Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears. And I took offense to it because I felt like the girls were in their splendor. They, they were different, they were unique, and they were unapologetically black. And we stuck to our guns and it paid off because then people started loving the outfits and waiting to see what they had on. But I took a lot of heat for them being different and unique and for pulling from black culture. I really mm -hmm. did. Tina, I, I saw on your Instagram not too long ago, and we just flashed the picture of the Writings on the Wall album cover, and you posted that on your Instagram and, and with the white outfits, and you were like, you know, now everybody's copying these styles. Like, we, I was ahead of my time, and what I loved about, like, your attitude towards that is, like, you're unapologetic, like, saying, I knew what I was doing. We saw, we, we saw the future and that you were, uh, even now, like, giving yourself credit for for influencing the culture so so it's it's something i grew up with this so i'm i'm even still geeky that i'm talking to you this way but uh but i wanted to ask i mean this experience of you knew the importance of black culture but for young girls your, your girls who are uh, how did you how did you did you have to shield them from what the the labels were saying like how did you protect their self-esteem about how they looked and all that um, well, the girls were very confident in their looks and they were happy and excited to wear the clothes and excited at what the uh, culture brought to the industry. It needed some flavor and they brought that, that flavor and they were always totally confident about it. They were all aware of the pushback because they felt it, you know, in photo shoots and, um, and just in comments that the label people would make. To them, their your hair is too big. We need to calm it down. It was always like, <clears throat> uh, I won't say dumb yourself down, but take away the dazzle, take away the, you know, take away the the the, the swag and uh, tone it down a bit and become very pop. And that turned out to be a lie because they stayed true to themselves and they still made it and they still crossed over and they had huge audiences. So 
you know, I'm just happy that we stuck to our guns, but they were, were raised to know that they were beautiful and every aspect of blackness was beautiful. I had African-American art everywhere with women of all colors, shapes, and sizes, and you know, beautiful black men. And so they never had that insecurity of not knowing that that, that was fly and be proud of and something to, um, you know, just not be apologetic about. Right. I wanted to bring in Beverly on, on this point, because um, Tina, I mean, you were there shepherding, shielding uh, your girls, like dealing with probably the wolves that were in the industry that were trying to change them. Beverly, like, did you have anybody in your corner? Like when you were going through, I mean, I read about, uh, as you said, like having to do a shoot in a pool, they draining the pool after you were in it. I mean, just really like, violent things happening to you. And I'm just wondering, how did you, how did you cope? Did you feel like you needed to be silent? Did you have a mom or an auntie, something like? Yes, yes. I, I, you know, I had a mother and father. Um, most of the time I was the only black model on the set. All of the time. And so I was there alone. I, I did have uh, my glam squad of of, of black gay men who actually taught me about my hair, my makeup, my look, and, 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 and really who I was and who had introduced me to the arts. But basically, I think, you know, you know I came from a, a family that academics were important. So when I went to modeling, it was like a study of the modeling industry. And it was, I was very pragmatic and I didn't take things personal. Uh, I heard them, and but I wouldn't let them stick because I had a goal. I'm very goal oriented, and I had a goal. And all of the obstacles and all of the arrows. One of the things of being a trailblazer, you get a lot of arrows in the front and the back. Was that you know I I wave to the obstacles and I keep going towards my goal. And I think I learned that from from swimming. I just really want to comment on what Tina said about really the culture and, and, and the fashion culture that, you know, Beyonce and, and, and you, Tina, have developed. And yes, we did take that culture and put it into the, the pages of the fashion magazines. And yes, they did say it was theirs and not, you know, and weren't inspired by people like you. But we've been doing that for our whole life culturally. From 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 Africa, we've adorned our, our our hair, our bodies, our skin, you know, everything. So it comes very natural for us to to have this exploration into uh, you know beauty and fashion. And my my vision today is, you know, crediting that, and I see you know the different fashion industry really trying to put a lot of black models forward and really commenting culturally on what's going on in this moment, which is wonderful, giving to the NAACP, which is great, doing scholarships, which, which is wonderful. But because I entered the industry to make money, my focus has been to make money. And I see in the industry, an industry that doesn't uh, let black people participate economically. 
There are no black people on the board of directors in the executive positions that make the policy and strategy that people in every echelon, particularly the top echelon, because they make they make the strategy of how it's going to go down, participate in the actual finance. So you have these huge brands and these huge companies and they're very profitable and we black people love it and we're buying everything, but we don't participate in the actual, uh, you know, uh, uh, economics of that company because we're, we're not there. We're not present. Yeah, and I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to, to take that, that, that thread you have of, of, you know, it's not just about, you know, who's in front of the camera. It's not just about models. It's not just about, it's also, you know, once you're in trying to use your influence to bring in uh, more black people at all kind of, you know, levels of, of the industry. And I, I'll, I'll ask Tina about this as well, but like this, this notion of, I mean, you, you talked about it in your op-ed, um, and I have a quote here. I don't know if we have the, the full quote, but you talked about what happened when you tried. You tried to use your position um, to bring in more. You said, I was reprimanded for requesting Black photographers, makeup artists, and hairstylists for photo shoots. Silence on race was then, and still is, the cost of admission to the fashion industry's top echelons. And, you know, as you just said, you felt like, I mean, if you were in it, you know, you wanted to make money. So you perhaps, you know, you tried, you did try and then you got the reaction you got. Right. So can you talk a bit more about, uh, about that? Well, you know, you can do what you can do. I, I realized very early on, uh, I want to do a lot of editorial, which didn't pay the, the amount of money that you know, different kind of campaigns paid because I realized that I needed my face and my name to be known in order to get the leverage to be able to do anything. And so every year by year, as, as I became a bigger model, I could say a little bit more, you know, I, I no longer wanted to do cigarette ads and alcohol ads because they were all up in Harlem, the big billboards and all over. And I didn't want black people to associate me with convincing them to smoke cigarettes, which were, gave you cancer and, and also an alcoholism. So, you know, as, as my, as my platform extended, I could use that platform to say really what's on my mind, but yes, it's true. I would, you know, do a little, you know, if a, if a hairdresser, I remember a, a makeup artist was stoned on the, on the set. I think, I believe it was glamour magazine. And he was really like sweating and trying to do my makeup. And I was, I went to the editor. I said, this guy, I'm not going to let him touch my eyes. I mean, he's stalling. He's like, she said, well, what are we going to do? I said, you know, I know a really amazing makeup artist. She said, you do? You think he would be busy? I mean, would he be booked today? I mean, I said, I don't know. He, he might not be booked today. He's very busy, but let me just see. And I called up Joey Mills, who's a black makeup artist. And he comes down, hey, I said, Joe, you got to calm it down a little bit, you know. But he went on to be one of the biggest black makeup artists doing makeup for white models and black models. So it was this kind of like just trying to do whatever I could do um, to, to remain in the position that I was in the industry, but also trying to reach down and help help someone else. Always working with black photographers. We did so many shoots, you know, um, 
afterwards, and Tony Barboza, Mel Dixon, so these great black photographers that never really got a chance to work in the white magazine, but we did collaborations together um, a lot of times. So on that note, this is where I, I want to bring uh, Tina back in, um, this topic of black photographers, because again, it's not just being in front of the camera, it's who's behind it, who's framing the shots, who's telling you what to do with your hair. Um, Tina, uh, you know, famously, uh, Beyonce in 2018 used her influence to uh, bring on Tyler Mitchell, who shot her cover for the September issue, making him the first Black photographer to shoot an American Vogue cover in 125 years. Um, can you can you shed any uh, light on 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 that decision and and you know what was Beyonce was thinking about and also maybe as a follow up I would love to know you and just from your own experience kind of what you did coming up uh, as Destiny's Child was growing as Beyonce and Solange were were gaining in, in fame and popularity like how you brought up black talent you know along with you guys. Well, in terms of the Vogue uh, cover, Beyonce was insistent upon a black photographer. And it's criminal <clears throat> that there had not been a black photographer. Um, so that was, uh, I mean, I thought that that was really groundbreaking. And, and the shoot was amazing and it was beautiful. And we had anticipation that there would be more behind him, but there has not been one since, which is really disappointing. And we are, you know, we're still waiting. We're still waiting. Um, and recently, uh, Viola Davis did the same thing. She had a Vanity Fair shoot and she uh, fought to bring a black photographer on for that, but it's only been the second time. And we have to do more of that as we are, we get more stature and we get more power then it's really important to insist that there are black people that are behind the camera. The makeup artists and the uh, hair people definitely have come a long way in terms of that, but the photographers, the person who is actually shooting the shoot, there are many, many amazing black photographers. And it's really important to, I mean, it's just a shame that you have to insist on that, but uh, that is the way it is. That's the way it's been. Why is that? Mm-hmm. So I, I just like to say in, in, in the fashion industry, it all because you know we you know it's the magazines and it's it's the photography. The photographer is the crucial. Mm-hmm. Everything revolves around the photographer. They are they have the power. As a model, you're you're way down there somewhere, but the photographer does have power. And I believe that they didn't want to give a black photographer that kind of power. Like for Francesco yes. Scusulo and Dick Avedon, they own their own photographs along with Vogue. Uh, I don't own those photographs. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a prop. So the photographer is a very powerful, is in a very powerful position in the fashion industry. And yes, we need more black photographers. There are brilliant, Black photographer. Thank you, Viola Davis, and thank you, Beyonce, for. I mean, it was. It was. You can't imagine 
you know, how my text messages were. Did you see the cover of Beyonce and the, you know, and the black photographer? And then to hear Tyler Mitchell say um, he's getting dust on his camera because mm -hmm. he hasn't been called for any other assignments is, is, is not and right. I'm glad you brought that up about how much power photographers have because I know that my artists have been in two times for magazine covers and uh, Solange specifically told me about a magazine that she shot for and the photographer actually told her that uh, that she would look better um, in something that was a little more over the top because black women were not great at, in minimalist uh, clothing. And that was just so, what does that mean? Like that is so ridiculous. Or Beyonce has been told, well, you never had an iconic photo before now. Just things that I don't think they would ever think of saying to someone that's in her position that was not black. I mean, it's like they take license to really decide what what you should and should not be. And um, that's something that's got to change also. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, well, the reason is, is because we're going to move on because they don't really see you. Mm -hmm. a photographer, I mean, literally, you know, it's almost like I hate to say it, a white police officer. They don't really see you. They see their skin color and it's like, you know, whose car are you driving? Kind right. of thing. They don't sum you up to like who you might be. And and that's, you know, something that I dealt with my whole career. Karen? Yeah. I'm sitting here shocked, <laughs> Tina, and so like you're in that, uh, the types of things that are, are said to us, you know, you, you can't do that. Black women don't do this. It's like, who, who, what? <laughs> um, I, and on that note, I mean, I, I couldn't have this conversation, Tina, with you on the line without talking about um, Beyonce's latest release. I mean, Black is King, you, you feature in it. It is stunning. It is not only black center, but Africa is is first and foremost. And I know there's been a lot of debate and dialogue about, you know, culture and appropriation, but I just wanted you to have a chance to, you know, say like maybe give us any little insight into into that uh, creation because that's really Beyonce lifting a whole continent, a whole diaspora up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I would love to hear hear well, anything you, know, you can hear about that. Well, you know, she was the voice of Nala in The Lion King. And so it caused her to really delve into the history of that story. And that is an African story. And, you know, of course, Disney told the story in terms of using uh, animation and not animation of African people, but animation of animals, which was fine. It was great. Um, it was a great movie. My kids and I looked at it a million times and the music was amazing. But <clears throat> the real story is about a, a king that was ousted by his brother and his son comes back, the prodigal son and the whole story. And so I remember having a conversation with her and also with the music director who shared that on the first uh, time around that a, a black man pinned one of the top songs in the movie and that 
he was given money, but not the credit for it. And it just really angered her because it's the same old story. And I remember that day leaving that studio and her saying, I'm going to create a, um, a film that's going to be, you know, a collection of my videos, but I'm going to tell the real story of what happened and show Africa in its regalness and its beauty because we weren't always slaves. And everything basically started there in Africa. The first person was in Africa. So this has been a real labor of love for her. It took her a year and a half of blood, sweat, and tears to do it. And um, there was some controversy. There was some controversy about, um, you know, people saying they only saw a 30-second trailer and they decided that she was appropriating culture. My question is, how do you appropriate the culture when you are the culture? You are Black. So how are you stealing it? That's not what we do. We can't steal from each other. Um, that has happened since the beginning of time in our watch. So um, she did, I'm just, I couldn't be more proud because I, there yeah. was a little girl yesterday, I have to say this, I saw a video of her and she is in Africa and she is boo-hooing, crying and they're like, why are you crying? It's after watching the movie and she says, it's so beautiful and it, it I bawled. I bawled when I saw that because I know that, that is what her intention was. Her intention was to touch little girls and make them know that they are beautiful and that our culture is beautiful and that is so much to be proud of. And it just, I mean, I reached out to her aunt who, you know, Beyonce is going to talk to this little girl because it's just, um, I mean, it did what she wanted it to do in it. I couldn't be prouder of that. That is so. I wanted to, or actually, I wanted to, because we we are running like short on time, and I want to make sure I want to make sure we we get to activism and this and solutions, and I want to um start like you know Beverly, you we mentioned in earlier in the discussion, but in terms of trying to solve some of these structural issues, you propose a Beverly Johnson rule, similar to the NFL Rooney rule, which requires that at least two black professionals uh, should be considered for C-suite positions for the executive level, you know, which is, I'd love for you to talk about like since the op-ed ran, um, if there's been any movement on that and then how you see yourself in terms of activism, you're speaking out here, um, you know, what's, what's, what's your plan like going forward to make so change? So when I decided to do the op-ed, and I, I, I turned to my fiance, Brian, who's a financier, and I said, you know, I just don't want to list the complaints. What, just give me some solution to racism. Just, just some solution. He mentioned the Rooney rule, and he said, you should do the Beverly Johnson rule. And the Beverly Johnson rule is just that, is, is it's really getting black professionals an opportunity just to be interviewed. You just have to interview two black professionals for the board of directors, the C-suites and the executives, because we know that the uh, strategy and the policy is made in the board of directors. And that's how I see change. Because if, if, if they're just looking at themselves making opinions, we're, we're not in those opinions that they're making. And, but we're contributing to their companies. We're buying, their, we're consumers of their product. 
So this is something that I feel is very easy to do, the Beverly Johnson rule, and Retrovay, a, a big skincare company, was the first to sign the pledge. And it was just very interesting that Jamie Heidegger and her husband, Klaus, actually wanted to know more about racism and what they're seeing on television and how that they want to do something to help. Mm -hmm. And they felt that by signing the pledge to interview at least two black professionals for the board of directors, the C-suites and, and, and all the way down to the makeup artists, just to have a just to have a face-to-face -face discussion with a black person, it helped with uh, Dan Rooney in the NFL, and NFL has their problems too, but that was 20 years ago and now we see black quarterbacks and we see um, you know, black coaches in the NFL, and I'm hoping for those same results in in the fashion in the fashion world with the Beverly Johnson. Tina. So Tina, um, thank you, Beverly. And Tina, like you are passionate about activism, and in particular when it comes to representation, voting um, is what you've you've really like dived into. Can you talk about talk about your work, and of course, you know, talk about what you're seeing particularly from, from black, maybe young black people who are going through this moment, seeing what's happening in terms of this racism that you guys have talked about in terms of George Floyd, and might say like, okay, yeah, you're a celebrity, that's nice, but I don't really see how voting is gonna solve any of this. So I'd love for you to talk, to talk about that. Well, that is what I get all the time, unfortunately. Um, you know, black people have been unheard for so long that they, they, you know, a lot of young people especially don't feel like their vote counts or maybe they don't love the candidate. And so therefore they feel like, you know, if I do vote, it's not going to make a difference. They haven't seen any difference in, you know, police killings and gun violence and all the things that happened, the systemic racism for so long that they just, don't believe that they can affect the change. And I uh, mentor young kids and uh, 94 of them and uh, meet with them on Mondays. And the general consensus was that a lot of the kids that I deal with from South Central, some of their parents are incarcerated or they have been victims of this racism. And, um, and you know, in the court systems, police brutality, some murdered, um, so they were not very optimistic and it, it, you know, they were in tears and they were hopeless. And so I said, God, we got to do something. We got to do something to change the narrative. So we started a project for them and it's called, I might be young, but I have a voice. And what they did is they did a PSA and they're all on this. We have this big contest going on who can sign up the most relatives and people in their community to vote. And we have just been talking and they, we've been learning politics and we've been learning how legislation works and how, you know, the, the best way to connect the dots for me has been to say that those judges that your family members went before, they were elected. The mayor was elected who hires a police chief. The district attorney is someone that you vote in. The attorney general, in the case of Breonna Taylor, the attorney general that absolutely black people voted in because he was a black man, but he turned out to be a nightmare and he is not 
you know, he's been doing an investigation for five months and he still hasn't finished. So go figure. But that is the example that I give to connect the dots for our people. And it's not our fault. We have been, you know, we've seen time and time again, and, uh, even with President Obama being elected, he was blocked in every bill he tried to pass. Um, you know, it's just explaining that and getting the education out to people about midterms, about the primary. A lot, most people don't understand that. They're not politicians, so they don't understand that. So I've been about the education of getting the word out. And, um, mm. you know, it's been very effective and we have a lot of people on the team to try to sign people up to vote, to educate them. Um, I'm very passionate about it. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I think there's so there's still so much education to be done as we're less than 100 days away. I mean, we, we talk a lot about national elections, but a lot of it, it comes down to judges, the election of judges, the election of state officials, local officials. So this is really important, important work that you're doing. Um, we have 10 minutes or so, so I'm not sure. Uh, team, if I could bring in um, the question from Indiana, from Melanie White if that is possible um, and see if I can. All right, so this question here, as black women, what do we specifically add to the conversation about race? And I would also like to add uh, Beverly and Tina, if you can keep the answer short, particularly you black women, you guys have come up during a time of you know segregation. I mean, uh, Tina, you told me, you know, how at some points you had the right in the back of the bus, like way back in the day. Now we're in this conversation again about race, fighting some of the same battles. So I'm wondering how both of you as, as um, older black women are seeing this moment and how you see black women's role in this time. I'll start with you, Beverly. So, uh, okay. you, you have to have a conversation about your experience. And you have to have that conversation with someone that is actually listening to you. Uh, um, you can have that conversation. Uh, you, you can write about it. You can you can sing about it. You you have to get your story out. And I I believe that today the conversation is more important. Like the vote is the most crucial thing that anyone can do is to vote. But the conversation is more receptive today than it's ever been. You have all these big companies. Oh, yeah, I was wrong. You know, I did black people wrong. Uh, what can I do or whatever? Well, why don't you have to let them know what they can do. Mm -hmm. I think it's now is the time. I feel like, you know, since the beginning of the movement from the 60s, uh, it's interesting because I just found a photo of all of these women, black and white women that were housewives, they were mothers, um, the common being mothers, I think, uh, that were protecting protesters. Now we're seeing that exact same thing happening today where there's a line of mothers are uh, protecting the protesters, protecting uh, the people that are watching. And it's been since the beginning of time because as a mother, there is a connection to your child. And when you hear about someone's child being murdered and calling out for their mom, that shows you the power of being a mom and being a woman 
and having that strong voice. And, you know, we are resilient and we are strong as women. So we will get out on the front lines and do what we have to do. And, and that's just such an important part of the movement. Some of the leaders now for, um, for this movement are, are most of them are women. And, you know, we saw that in the Women's March. We can come out in droves and we can be powerful. And so I think a woman's voice has always been a part of the movement. And it's kind of like deja vu because I, it's like living back in the 60s. I can't believe some of the things that are happening. But women have always been a big part of that and always will be. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, about five more minutes. I'm going to bring in uh, one last audience question. Um, from Robert Weiss in Louisiana, who asks, what organizations do you support to encourage Black-owned small businesses in minority communities? Well, well, um, um, organization right now, there's an initiative on B. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm Tina. Tina? Go ahead, Tina. Oh, oh, I'll, Beverly, you go. I mean, you want to go? Well, yes. Well, there's an organization called um, Bringing Out Successful Sisters. And Bringing Out Successful Sisters are, is an organization by Kamika Smith who um, um, helps Black entrepreneurial women. More Black women are entrepreneurials today than any other time in history. We are the largest, the largest group of entrepreneurs. So, this is, is an organization that I've been a part of. She, she had her 10th year anniversary and I, I came on um, when she was three years, three years in. So that's how I'm you know, trying to make a contribution is actually talking to these women and, and telling them what I know about, you know, because being an entrepreneur is, <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. You, you should just go get a job if you, but, being a, a, a black business owner is very difficult, but they have a lot of support with uh, support groups that are really actually teaching them about their entrepreneurship and how they can make it better and how they can make it easier. And it's always this power in numbers, you know, right. so, right. so it's called the boss network. The Tina, what about you? Is there a, a particular, um, uh, what organizations do you yeah. support? Well, the, um, the Leadership Conference on Human and Civil Rights, they have an initiative um, for Black businesses, and so does uh, Beyonce ha has just started an initiative where they gave uh, business owners grants. Um, I have to get the exact name of it. My, my head is swimming right now with so many things, but you know, if you look up, if you go online and just look up organizations that support black businesses, that's the best way to find, you know, a list of those. Okay. All right. Thank you guys. And I guess we are almost out of time, but I just wonder if from each of you in one sentence, what message do you both have for the next generation of black women? Beverly, I'll start with you. One sentence. One sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, no pressure. Keep, keep moving. Keep the faith. I like it. I like it. Tina, what about you? One sentence or less. Message for Black women. Don't vote. <laughs> Please vote. 
right. I can dig it. All right. Sounds good. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. We could have gone on for so much longer, but I, I am so grateful, Beverly and Tina, for you to, for taking the time out to be with us at The Post. It's such a moving and thoughtful conversation. And I want to thank the audience uh, for tuning in. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.